Our reading this afternoon is going to come from Genesis chapter 15. So if you would, would you open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 to 6. And uh, I'm not sure if you normally read the catechism in line with the, uh, in line with the scripture reading. Is that standard? You guys kind of pair those two together right now? All right, awesome. So I'll read the passage, and, uh, and then after we'll read the catechism as well and uh, repeat uh, what that confession says to us. But uh, before we jump into our text here this afternoon, let's begin uh, with a word of prayer. Our great and heavenly Father, we come before you this afternoon to hear from the living God the words of our Savior. Lord, we pray that today you would make your word come alive, that the promises that are contained here would shine as the very stars in the heaven, that you would, Lord, speak so powerfully, that you would remove all doubts and you would set our eyes upon him who walks with us just as you walked with our Father. Abram. Lord, we pray that today we would see again the great treasure, the great pearl of our salvation, the person and work of our Savior in Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. Genesis 15, we're going to read uh, the first six verses here together. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. I apologize, I am reading from the ESV. I know you guys are all reading from the NIV. I couldn't find an NIV Bible, so I went with my ESV. My apologies, but that's where the differences of language will come out. So again, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be a very great But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now if you'll turn in your back of the book of praise uh, books to, I believe it's 573. And that would be wrong. Here we go, 537. Lord's Day 23. I believe I say the question, you'll respond and answer, right? No, no answer. All right, I'll just read it. (laughs) Question 59 asks us this, but what does it help you now that you believe all this? In Christ, I am righteous before God, an heir to life everlasting. Question six, he asks, how are you righteous before God? It is only by true faith in Jesus Christ. And although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments and have never kept any of them and am still inclined to all evil, yet God, without 
any merit of my own out of mere grace imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I had never had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. What a beautiful response. And question 61 says, Why do you say that you are righteous only by faith? It's not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith. For only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. I can receive this righteousness and make it mine own by faith only. Well, beloved, uh, when one of the first sports I ever began to play growing up was the game of baseball. And uh, I started this already at the age of five. I remember looking forward to baseball season because I watched my older brothers play baseball. And uh, watching them, I wanted to continue on the family legacy. So I got a little bit of a glimpse of baseball, and I was eager to get out there and play. And if you didn't know, in five pitch, uh, they allow you to pick your positions. And so I said, I want to be the pitcher. I want to be the guy who's getting the most action in the game. And I said, that's a position I would like to play if you will allow me. And they did. But what they didn't tell me is that in five pitch, what you do as pitcher is you stand beside the coach and you watch him throw the ball while you just sit around the entire time. And it didn't take me long to say, this is the most boring sport that there is. I'd rather go chase butterflies out in the field. And I switched my game over to soccer, and the Lord took me to bigger and better things. And I have never regretted it ever since. Soccer is where I remained and still is the sport that I love. But uh, I wonder if you've ever had an experience like that. Where you uh, signed up for something or you tried out something and you had this expectation of what you were getting into and the reality didn't quite match the expectation you had. And so some guy tells you, hey, I've tried out this game. It was so much fun. You got to try this game and you go out and you try the game and it doesn't quite seem to be as fun as they were describing it to be. Or the, you hear of a, a family vacation, a, a spot that some people were saying is amazing that you got to go out and experience and you go out there and the reality just doesn't hit you uh, like it did them. When we come to Abram in our text and we see in Genesis chapter 12 that the Lord says he's going to do these amazing and awesome things for Abram. And Abram is here in chapter 15 and the reality is not quite matching up. If you look back in chapter 12, God says in verses, the first three verses there, Get out of your country, Abram. And from your family and your father's house to a land, I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That sounds amazing. God is going to bless Abram. He's going to make his name great. He's going to bless all the nations of the earth through Abram. He's going, to, he's going to do all of these things for Abram. But here he is in chapter 15, and he has no children. He has no land. He's not seeing how the nations are being blessed through him. And he's wondering if he's just been led on. 
I wonder if you've ever had that in your own Christian walk as you're looking at what God says in his word and you're, you're looking at your own experience and you're wondering, is God just leading me on a string of promises? Is he just leading me forward on promises that he actually cannot fulfill, he can't actually keep? Is God just bluffing here? And here in chapter 15, God comes and he meets Abram and he shows Abram, no, I am not bluffing Abram. You will not regret following me because I am your exceedingly great reward. No one who follows me will regret following me. I want to look at this text in in three ways. God promises three rewards that he will indeed keep. Abram, I am your exceedingly great reward, the reward of himself. And God gives the reward of children. He says to Abram again, I'm going to make your descendants like the very stars in the heavens. And then God gives the reward of righteousness that we see in verse 6. Abraham believed and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Those are our three points as we look at our text. And it begins here by saying, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. After these things, it tells you that whatever is in our text is following the narrative before. It's intimately connected with what has just happened. If you look back into chapter 14, we see that Abram was on a rescue mission. Lot and the whole people of Sodom were taken captive by a bunch of kings and they were being taken away. So Abram had to go on a rescue mission to go get his nephew. And so he runs down and he saves nephew and he brings him back. But in the meantime, he has ticked off some pretty powerful people. And one of those is the king of Sodom himself. And the king of Sodom is no small enemy. He is a powerful king. He has a lot of people under his reign. And Abraham talks to him in one of the most bold ways that I think you can. You see, Sodom come, or the king of Sodom comes after Abram and says, Abram, I want to cut you a deal. I know that you've rescued us, but I'll give you the goods of our land if you'll just give me the people. And Abram says, no deal, in a powerful response. Look at chapter 14, verses 21 to 23 with me. This is how Abram speaks to him. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, take the goods for yourself. There's the deal. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. It is a bold response, a courageous response. But at the same time, this bold language likely is causing Abram a lot of fear. Why else does God come and say, fear not, Abram? Abram is scared. Abram's scared because he has come back from a fight. He only has 318 men. He is sitting in a valley, and he thinks to himself, with this type of language, with this type of response, I've just poked a bear. And soon, the king of Sodom is going to be right on my tail. Doesn't that make these words of God all the more powerful? As God says to Abraham, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. 
God says, fear not, Abram. This is the first time we have that fear not language in the Bible. Throughout the Bible, you're going to see God come with that language again and again and again. You do not need to fear because of who I am. Abram, I am your shield. No matter who comes after you, no matter the amount of pursuers, no matter what they throw at you, whether it be javelins or arrows, whether they're hunting you down day and night, guess what? I am your shield. Abram, I am going to act like your personal bodyguard a hundred percent of the time. Wherever you go, whatever place, I'm there with you. And I will be your shield. And it's in this context that God reminds Abram that he is also his exceedingly great reward. It's a beautiful context for that to happen. For Abram has just said to the king of Sodom, I'm not going to take a thread from you or a sandal strap. Why? Lest the world think you're the person who is making me rich. I don't want the world to get that type of thought. I want them to know that my blessing comes from the Lord. So God comes here and says, Abram, you got it spot on. I am your exceedingly great reward. That above all the promises, the promises of the land, the promises of children, the promises of making your name great, the greatest reward you can have, Abraham, is me. I am that exceedingly great reward. That is the treasure of heaven. The treasure of heaven is not the idea of playing a nice game of golf and no longer having joint pain or back pain. The pleasure of heaven is, is not the idea that you get to play cards with family and friends. Maybe we'll do these things in heaven. I don't know. But the real treasure of heaven is God himself. That's why I believe scripture seemingly has very few glimpses of heaven. Very few times where we're talking about a new heaven and earth. Because it wants to keep forefront in your mind that the greatest treasure of heaven is God himself. And every page of scripture is revealing him. It's revealing that treasure. And so in that way you can say the whole Bible is about heaven because it's talking to you about your God. Abram, I am your exceedingly great reward. I hope you know that treasure. That though you may not have the, the land or the children, Abram, you have me. And though you may not have everything about a new heaven and a new earth and new bodies, you have God. And that is an exceedingly great reward. Do you realize that? You see it with couples, right? When they love each other a lot, they, they speak in this treasuring language. You know, I'd give, up, I'd give up the whole world if I could be with you. I'd give up my career to be with you. I love you that much. I think that's the idea that we have in Christianity too. When we say love so amazing, so divine, it demands my heart, my soul, my all. It demands everything from me. God, you're my greatest treasure. Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he was called into the ministry, he was 27. He had a prestigious career that was laid out for him in the field of medicine. He was going to be a doctor to some of the royal family and he turned it down. And people came up to Abram and, or came up to Martin Lloyd Jones and they said, Why would you be willing to give up such a prestigious medical career? You're obviously talented in this, you're helping people. Why would you be willing to give that up to go into ministry? And do you know what he said? He said, I 
have given up nothing and I have gained everything. That's a man that knows that the greatest treasure there is is knowing God and knowing him deeply. I was listening to an interview with Wayne Grudem. He's getting older now. He's one of these theologians who's written so many works, so many books on God. He's been studying God his whole life. And so the interviewer was asking Wayne Grudem, he said, what do you want your legacy to be? What do you want people to remember you for when you pass on? And he's getting, he's in his 70s now, he's getting a bit older, and he started to break down. He said, I want people not to remember me for my books and, and all these works that I've written. I want people to remember me as a person who loved Jesus and loved his word. That's a man that knew his highest treasure is God. What about you? Would heaven be heaven without God? Would heaven be heaven without Jesus? Do you understand that he is the greatest treasure? That's why we gather here together week by week. That's why we tell each other about what he's doing in our lives. That's what we tell each other about what we've been learning, the books that we've been reading, the things we've been experiencing about our God because he is the richest treasure this whole world could offer. Abram, I am your exceedingly great reward. If that's not your perspective, God is challenging you here to recognize that, that there's nothing more beautiful than knowing him. You can look into God forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and never come to an end of how big and how glorious he is. Let him be your number one priority. We see the reward of God himself. The second thing we want to see in our text is the reward in promise. This Language of reward is, is, is bringing to Abram the present problem and predicament that he is in. He recognizes the great treasure of having this God as his reward, but he also thinks about the other promises God has given. And God has said that he's going to have descendants so many in, 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 in Genesis uh, chapter uh, 13. God says to Abram that I will make your descendants like the dust of the earth. So he knows he's going to have this this huge lineage. In chapter 12, he says the same thing, right? I will make you a great nation. God has come to him again and again and again with these promises. But here he is in chapter 15. We don't know exactly what his age is, but in chapter 12, he was 75. In chapter 18, he was 90. So if we split the difference, he's likely getting up into his upper 80s. He's looking at his life and he says, here are the promises that God has made to me. You know, it would be helpful if I had one son. If I had one single piece of evidence to prove to me that this is even possible. That these promises could really come about. And so now, Abram feels like it's a good time to begin surfacing some of these internal doubts that he's been having. Verse 2, we have him speaking up before our God. And Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. You see, this is a reality gap that we described in the very beginning. He says, you've made these promises, and here's how I'm living. How do these things jive? How do they go together? They seem to completely contradict themselves. We're in our upper 80s. 
we're not really in our childbearing years anymore, Lord. How are you going to make this happen? How is this possible? Is there one piece of evidence that could help me see how you're going to fulfill these things? Have you ever been there in your own life where you're looking at Scripture and you're looking at your circumstances and you're asking God, how do these jive? You say that all things are going to work out for good. I'm looking at my life and everything seems to be working out for disaster. You say to me that you'll provide for all of my needs and here I am and I'm without a job and I'm not even sure how I'm going to make next month's rent. You you tell me that you can wash away my sins and forgive me. Well, you have no idea how messed up I am and how big my past of failures are. What do you do with these doubts? Abram brings them before God. Ian Duguid has an insightful comment on this very passage. He says, If the planting of doubt works so well in the garden, how much more effective will it be in our fallen world, where a gap exists between God's promises and much of our experience? You see what he's saying there? He said, if the devil could cause doubt in a perfect garden, in in the Garden of Eden, in a perfect world, to our first parents who were perfect, if he could make them doubt the goodness of God, how much more capable is he making us able, or how much more capable is he of making us doubt our God? The devil suggests in the garden, you know why God is holding back that fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil? Well, it's because he knows that the day you eat it, you're going to be like him. He's holding you back. He's got, he's got more, but he doesn't want you to become too big. And they doubted God. And here we are in a fallen world where we see so much sin, we see so much havoc. How much more tempted are we to doubt the goodness of God's plan or the capability of his plan? And he goes on to say, so what should you do then? When the reality gap overwhelms your faith, you should lay it before God. Abram opened all his concerns out before God. Even doubting thoughts and feelings that border on sin are better laid out before the gracious eyes of the Lord than nursed in our hearts. God will not be shocked. He knows our inmost thoughts anyways. And we see God deal very graciously with our father Abram here. What does he do with our our great uh, uh, father of the faith? What does he do to help deal with these doubts? Well, he takes them out stargazing. Look at verses 4 and 5 with me. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. In this time, there's no light pollution in the skies. There would have been nothing standing in the way. All of the stars would have shone in their dazzling splendor. And God is going to go take Abram out stargazing and show him the power of his might. For the heavens declare the glory of God. Romans 1 verse 20 tells us, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. And God is going to use the stars to burn these promises into Abram's eyes. Abram, can you count the stars. Well, good luck, Abram. 
Because here we are 4,000 years later and we are still counting. And not even counting, we're just estimating. We have telescopes like Hubble, like James Webb that are seeing to, to, to new depths in our universe than we've ever seen before. And we just see more and more stars. Our very own Milky Way galaxy is estimated to have one billion stars. The average galaxy has around 100 million stars. They used to estimate that there is around uh, 100 to 200 billion galaxies. Now they estimate there's 4 to 6 trillion galaxies, with potential being there's 20 trillion galaxies. So we're just estimating. There's maybe four to six trillion galaxies. There's maybe 20 trillion galaxies. And each of these galaxies holds around 100 million stars. If Abram was counting, we would still see him going around one, two, three. He wouldn't be able to count up the sum. Abram, can you count my stars? No, you can't. But you know who can, Abram? The God who is standing right beside you. Psalm 147 tells us this. He counts the number of the stars and he calls them by name. You see what God's doing? He's saying, Abram, your counting's a bit different than my counting. Your numbering system's a little bit different than my numbering system. Your power is a little bit different than my power. I am so much more capable than what you could even imagine. He's bringing him to a place to say what Jeremiah said. Ah, sovereign Lord, you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm, surely nothing is too hard for you. Maybe God is coming to you today and he's saying, can you count my stars? Are you able to make all the different minutia, all the different millions and trillions of events going on in this world, are you able to make all of those events so that it all goes to the glory of Christ, so that all things are from him and through him and to him? Are you capable of leading and directing all of these millions of things? No, you can't, but I am. You see, you tend to look inside your own little box. You tend to say, how are these promises possible from your own little vantage, from your own little perspective? May I remind you, I'm a little bit bigger than your box. (laughs) I'm the God who breathed and all the stars came out. It's almost like an afterthought in Genesis. You ever notice that? God's creating the world and it just says, and he made the stars. Just a little afterthought. He breathes and the stars come into existence. He upholds them by the power of his word. He knows them all by name. What God is saying is, Abraham, I'm a little bit more powerful. I'm a little bit more capable. It may seem beyond you. It may seem impossible to you in your own fleshly strength, but I'm a little bit bigger than that. These promises aren't going to come to pass because of you, Abraham. They're going to come to pass because of me. He shows them the promise of himself. He shows them how he's going to make this happen, the promise of these stars. The last thing we want to look at here is the reward of, of righteousness. 
final verse that we have in our text, uh, verse 6, is a pivotal uh, scripture throughout all of the New Testament. We find this verse being referred to again and again. It's referred to in Galatians. It's referred to in Romans. It's referred to in James. It is a key uh, text to understanding one of the pivotal doctrines of the Christian faith of how in the world sinners like us can be justified before a holy God. And it's summarized here in verse 6. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. After hearing of this account of God speaking with Abram, the Holy Spirit records what happens in his heart. He believes and God gives him this reward of righteousness. Now this is one of the greatest rewards that there are. You would be no fool if you gave all your silver, all your gold, all your belongings, everything you have for this reward. But it doesn't come through that means. You don't have to, in other words. God says you can have this reward by one simple means, by believing in me. It's by faith. And that's what our catechism so beautifully is going to outline and teach for us. How can Abram be considered righteous? The catechism says, why do you say that you are righteous only by faith? It's not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, for only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. I can receive this righteousness, and I can make it my own by faith only. You can be the richest person on planet Earth, clothed in the very righteousness of Jesus by faith. It's for you. You can receive it. Believe it. This is a beautiful promise. And if there's one area where the devil is going to want to attack you, where your own conscience is going to accuse you, where he's going to do what he can to make you doubt this promise, it's in regards to the righteousness of your Savior on your behalf. Look at how much the Catechism says is working against us in this regard. It says, that although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments and have never kept any of them, and though I am still inclined to all evil. Let me summarize that. It's saying, even though my, my heart is, is still inclined towards all evil, my conscience is constantly accusing me, even though I have all of this evidence lying before me, that there's no way I can be righteous before God. The catechism goes on with one of those but God type of interventions. It says, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace... He imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. And he grants these to me as if I had never had nor committed any sin. And as if myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Wow, that's incredible. God's going to view you in the perfect obedience and righteousness of Jesus on your behalf because you believe what his word says. You can be righteous before me because of what Jesus did. Abraham believed and it says it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's a mathematical term. The Bible describes sin as being like a debt. And every day that we sin, every day that we sin in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, in our deeds, this is accumulating that debt. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger with interest. And it's becoming so large. You can never pay this on your own. It will take eternity to pay off. But the Bible says that debt can be cleared in a single moment. This term accounting, what it's saying is that God can take the sin that is in your account and he can transfer it to the cross of Calvary 
so that Christ will pay off that debt for you and not just pay off your debt, but he will take his righteousness and transfer it to your account so that you can be seen in the riches and wealth of your Savior, Jesus Christ, on your behalf. You can be debt-free today. You don't have to bear your sin. You don't have to bear that guilt. You don't have to bear that shame day in and day out. That debt can be canceled. You can be set free when you believe in Jesus. You believe, and it will be accounted to you for righteousness. And your account can be filled with the very perfect perfection and obedience of your Savior, seen in light of what he has done for you. That's good news. In Psalm 32, it uses this same language. It says, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute, does not give iniquity. He doesn't treat you in regard to your sins, which is to say positively, he treats you according to the righteousness of your Savior. This promise of children seems so far beyond Abram. Look at all the stars in the heavens. It was far beyond his capability. He was getting older. He could not do this in and of himself. You cannot merit righteousness on your own. You need Jesus. It may seem like a promise that is far beyond. It may seem as distant as the stars in the heavens. But God says, if you believe in me, this righteousness can be for you. And you can be seen in what my son has done on your behalf. Can you count the stars? No. But God is able to count your sins. And he's able to take every single one, all of that debt, and cancel it for you at the cross of Calvary. The highest treasure, the highest reward that there is on planet earth is seen in Jesus. All of these promises, they find their yes and their amen in him. Jesus related what he is like, he says, I'm kind of like the man who goes out into the field and he's digging in the field and he finds this, this treasure. And what does he do? He sells all he has to go get that treasure. He recognizes that is a treasure worth giving everything for. Or it's like a, a merchant who, who's going around and he finds these pearls. And what does he do? He sells all he has to get those pearls. If you recognize the treasure that is here in our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. You would be no fool if you gave up all of this world or 10,000 worlds, all the gold and silver that even Solomon had to receive this. The Bible says all you must do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and it's yours. Every promise in him is a yes and an amen. All of these promises, they start to shine like the very stars in the heavens because they derive their glory from Jesus himself. One day, beloved, God says that you will shine like the stars in heavens, probably in fulfillment to what God is saying to Abram here, because you are dressed in the very righteousness of Jesus. You'll be seen like these very stars. This is what Daniel says. He says, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. There's a song by Rich Mullins that says, Sometimes I think of Abraham, how one star he saw had been lit for me. I pray that each of you know that for yourself. 
And one day you will shine like the stars in heavens because you will be clothed in the righteousness, not because of your own power of what you've done in your life, the legacy you leave. No, because you are wrapped in the righteousness of your Savior. You will shine like the stars above us. Maybe it's good to go out for a walk tonight and see the power of your God, see the power of the one who is able to to make those stars hang there in galaxies way out there. See the capability of your God, the power of your God. And to be assured that this God can make you righteous because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. Let's end there and go to our God and thank him. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful text. And we pray for any of those who are coming here today who have doubts in their minds, who have accusations in their minds that are dealing with guilt and shame and the weight of sin, the debt of sin. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would remind them again that you're able to remove these sins as far as the east is from the west. That you're able to clear our accounts and you're able to see us in Jesus Christ. So we can come into your presence, as Hebrews tells us, before a a throne of grace, knowing that we are seen in him, loved and known by our very God. And so would you welcome us again today in your presence. Make us to know these great treasures, to believe them and see the great pearl that you are before our very eyes. We pray, O Lord, that uh, these promises would shine as the stars in in the heavens and that you would burn them in our eyes like you just did with our father Abraham. We pray all these things in Jesus' most glorious name. Amen.